Welcome back to the Tea on 2020. The podcast that helps you stay politically informed because we all know that it's a struggle to stay up to date. So instead, use our weekly TLDR to maintain your status as an informed voter. In our last podcast, we talked about immigration, and we also talked about one dangerous association with immigration, drugs. This would be the part of the podcast where we cue Narcos theme song, if we could afford the licensing rights. Just assume it's playing, okay? From classic Hollywood films such as Scarface and Traffic, to media coverage surrounding that caravan, to political rallies, securing the border seemed to go hand in hand with drug control. But in reality, drug access, specifically illegal access to opioids, has created harrowing implications in the U.S. The U.S. Department of Human and Health Services estimates that in 2017, over 130 people died from opioid-related overdoses every day. Furthermore, they estimated that 11.4 million people misused prescription opioids that year. That's more people than the total population of Portugal. Place I want to visit. In addition, 2.1 million people in 2017 were diagnosed with opioid use disorder. The opioid crisis does not discriminate. As of 2018, the hardest hit states are Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, and the epidemic at this stage is affecting both urban centers and rural communities at such magnitude that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services declared the crisis to be a national public health emergency. Yes. Now let's switch gears to the theory portion of this podcast. Oxycontin, heroin, and fentanyl. You may have heard of some of these drugs before. Even though these terms can be confusing when used interchangeably and reduced to a term like opioid, in reality, they are different drugs in both makeup and distribution. We need to understand the differences to truly understand policy. Oxycontin is a pain-reducing medication derived from the poppy plant. DEA data from the Automation of Reports and Consolidation Order System, ARCOS, indicated that from the 12.6 billion legal dosage units of opioids manufactured and distributed, 79% were oxycodone or hydrocodone products, or the official name for oxycontin. Fentanyl is similar to oxycontin in that it too is produced and regulated for the legal market. It is a synthetic drug used for pain management as well, in a similar way to a more commonly known painkiller, morphine. However, there are illegal synthetic forms of these two pain-killing drugs that primarily enter the United States from China and Mexico. Fentanyl continues to be the primary illegally synthetic opioid available in the United States because it is easy to ship due to its light weight. These shipments are even sent through the mail, mostly from China. Imagine the same truck carrying your Amazon Prime delivery could be fueling the opioid crisis. You've probably heard of heroin before, and if you haven't, your health teacher did not do a good job, or you are way too innocent for this cruel, cruel world. Heroin is sometimes called a natural morphine. It's derived from morphine naturally found in the seed of the opium poppy plant. However, shocker, it's not a legally used drug. This means that heroin production is non-regulated and users cannot know the concentrations of the active ingredients they are exposed to. Heroin from Mexico accounted for 91% by weight of the heroin analyzed by the DEA, but this does not mean it is all the heroin that came into the country. Heroin from South America accounted for most of the remainder, with less than 1% by weight from Southwest Asia. 
The DEA states that the southwest border remains the primary entry point for the drugs into the U.S. However, contrary to what Narcos, even my personal favorite, Narcos Mexico, may have led you to believe, most heroin is not seized from body carriers, but rather the drug is brought into the U.S. at points of entry using transportation vehicles such as automobiles crossing into San Diego and ferries that run from the Dominican Republic to Puerto Rico. If Trump listens to this podcast, maybe next he'll try to put up a wall around Puerto Rico. A paper towel wall, perhaps. So here's the kicker. Many people addicted to these drugs actually use a combination of these substances. Specifically, as the black market price of heroin has increased, fentanyl has surged in popularity because it can be used as a filler. In other words, fentanyl is used to subsidize a user's normal heroin dose that they used to get. But this is extremely dangerous. We're talking, they have tried to use fentanyl as an execution drug dangerous. The National Institute on Drug Abuse states that it is 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. Bet your health teachers forgot to teach you that. So, fentanyl is lethal at doses over 0.25 milligrams, making it easier to overdose or misuse because a smaller amount of fentanyl is needed to get the same fix that a user gets from their normal dose of heroin. Furthermore, unlike Oxycontin, a drug that can be found in its legal form on the drug market, fentanyl found on the black market is made illegally, so it too lacks any form of regulatory measure, just like heroin. So, as black market fentanyl has surged, it is also easier to obtain heroin laced with it without knowledge, one of the leading causes of overdoses, and that's scary. We're ending this portion on a pretty dark note, because unfortunately there's no clear end in sight to this harrowing problem. Still, let's focus on the candidates' answers to ending this epidemic. Moving forward, candidates will need to answer the following questions. Should we target drug manufacturers or focus on the people affected? Are there people, countries, or specific industries that should be held accountable for the epidemic? Should we be taking a short or long-term approach to this solution? Donald J. Trump, a man that needs no introduction. That's the first candidate we're going to be talking about in the 2020 elections. So pretty much we're going to talk about Trump and his current administration's opioid crisis policy. Uh, he introduced a three-part initiative to stop opioid abuse. Uh, this began in 2018, and the main goal is to confront the driving forces behind the opioid crisis. Therefore, in order to do so, this abuse, this stopping the opioid abuse program was broken into three parts. The first was reducing demand and overprescription by educating Americans about the dangers of opioid misuse. So the goal is to curb overprescriptions of these opioids. So in order to do so, the Trump administration has proposed a safer prescription plan that cuts opioid prescription fills by one-third within the th- next three years. Hmm. Next, he plans to cut down the international and domestic drug supply chains that, quote, devastate American communities, end quote. This is done by securing land borders, ports of entry, and waterways against drug smuggling. The last part of this initiative is to help people with struggling with addiction through evidence-based treatment and recovering support system. Um, additionally, a landmark legislature that was passed under the Trump administration and one of the few bipartisan bills passed was the Support Act, or the Substance Use Disorder Prevention 
and promotes opioid recovery and treatment. That's a lot. That's too much. <laughs> that is quite <laughs> the mouthful. But basically, it has critical provisions to teach addiction medicine by increasing and strengthening our workforce, whatever that means, standardize the delivery of addiction <laughs> medicine, and expand access to high-quality, evidence-based care and cover addiction medicine so that it can deliver coordinated and comprehensive treatment. It kind of sounds like drug treatment has like two hands that are like trying to like figure out what to do. <laughs> so I guess kind of, you know, with this quick overview of the Trump administration's kind of plan so far, um, I don't know, Lana, what do you think? Do you think this is an innovative plan? Um, um, is there anything that's unique to it? Well, to me, I don't think there's much that it says. I mean, there's no one who can disagree with this because everyone wants to treat addiction except for your drug dealer. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that we talk about um, evidence-based treatments because evidence-based is – it's really one of those meaningless terms. It means that something that works, but in here it's not suggesting what works. It's not saying evidence-based treatment, so we're going to go to this specific place. It's saying – you know, someone smarter than me has figured out what to do and we're just going to follow them. Right. Like anyone could write a journal article and publish it in some made-up journal they make. It's, there's exactly. the evidence. There's their evidence. But right. is it really – is it truthful? Is it going to work? Mm-hmm. And I'm – so this is this plan has already been in place for over a year. Right. The Support Act. So what really has changed? Because from my information, I believe that deaths are actually rising nationwide. From the opioid crisis. Right. Like teen use of heroin has gone down. But besides that, overall, no Americans who are using have has continued to increase. And I mean, do you do you think that this kind of um this third bullet point under his stop opioid abuse initiative that uh highlights the international and domestic drug supply chains? Mm-hmm. Do you think this part of the plan kind of pushes for an immigration scapegoat and kind of pumps his supporters towards this, you know, build the wall type of idea. Well, it really depends on how it's enacted. Because we talked about this a little bit before in our intro, how drugs are coming in across all of the borders through points of entry, most of them through ports of entry. Right. So if he's really targeting where these drugs are coming, then, you know, it's accurate. You're going to really have to. It's going to be very hard since these drugs are coming in through the mail. Right. So yeah. unless they're going to open all my Amazon pro- like products, right. I don't know what they're going to do. A wall's not going to fix this, but being more cautious will. But I think that this might give him the motivation he needs to justify his wall. And I'm worried about that. Right. And I think, again, as we talked in the previous podcast, it kind of plays onto the stereotype of what an immigrant is. It kind of creates this, yeah, this type of, you know, rally cry that a very simple solution will fix all ailments. Yeah. Um, but I do got to give the White House credit. I mean, it's kind of interesting that they've taken these steps at all, given right. their previous apprehensions um, for really using government regulation in healthcare. I agree. And the fact that they passed some type of act, even though it might be very vague and not actually do anything, I think it shows in paper that at least the two parties can agree on something, that this crisis has reached a point that if we don't control it or start looking into ways to curb it, I mean, we don't know where this can go and the ramifications it will have on future generations. Truth. So let's take a look at what Elizabeth Warren has to say next. 
Elizabeth Warren is 69 years old, uh, the U.S. Senator for Massachusetts, and she launched her 2020 campaign on February 19th, 2019. Um, some interesting facts about uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, her estimated net worth is between 2.5 to $8.4 million, which is, <laughs> which is arguably one of the most wealthy um, candidates entering from the Democratic side. Um, she originally uh, studied in college speech pathology and audiology and went to college on a state high school debate scholarship before becoming a lawyer. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see her in the debates because I definitely think she's going to be a very... She's so competitive. Yeah, she's going to be a very, you know, animated debater. Um, she is stereotypically known to tackle and solve income inequality streaming from big banks and Wall Street, which stems from her expertise on bankruptcy law. And before the 1990s, she was actually a registered Republican. I mean, so was Abraham Lincoln. So let's give her a little bit of a break. Yeah. Maybe she still thought, you know, was right. fighting for him. So this is kind of like a, an individual who, despite, you know, being a woman, um, she has, you know, this kind of like mystique behind her. Um, but she is very dedicated. And I think one of the most dedicated Democrats uh, looking to kind of solve the opioid crisis. And this is because she's actually in 2018 introduced with, Representative Elijah Cummings, the Democrat from Maryland, the comprehension, the comprehensive, excuse me, Addiction Re- Resource Emergency Act, or the CARE Act. They kind of with these acronyms. <laughs> um, but basically, the bill would authorize a hundred billion dollars over ten years to combat drug addictions. So that's again ten billion dollars a year, and basically, it's going to be this budget that kind of distributes into different. Um, lump sums into different kind of sectors uh, that focus on the opioid crisis. So, for example, some money is going to go to the states, territories, local governments, nonprofits, and tribal governments. Now, this is really interesting because I think when we talk about the opioid crisis, we tend to forget about territories and tribal lands in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and how they are impacted by this crisis and how arguably they have even higher rates of substance use due to their poverty. Um, so she's an individual who kind of introduces these people back into the conversation. Um, so the money is going dis- to be distributed over these, you know, areas based on the overdose levels. Now, money is also going to go to competitive grants, funding treatment models, uh, expanding overdose antidotes, uh, research, surveillance, which I think has to do with like immigration and border security, um, and healthcare staff training. Now, the idea is that not anyone will get this money willy-nilly because, you know, they claim they're doing research, for example. Um, There are going to be guardrails. HHS, which is the Health and Human Services Department, has to develop standards for any type of treatment regarding to this crisis that is developed from this funding. So it's going to be kind of like a FDA-style regulation. Um, There are going to be rules and waivers that kind of push treatment facilities to provide a range of medications for opioid addiction treatment. Mm -hmm. So this idea of like allowing for the gold standard of treatment to get preferences like uh, bupropen and methadone. Wow. That was impressive. (laughs) And I think what's also very interesting is that money can also go to programs and studies that are related to the crisis, but not on the crisis itself. So for example, needle exchange programs, that can reduce, for example, the transmission of uh, bloodborne pathogens due to this crisis. So kind of healing another portion that opioid overuse. And can um, you explain what the needle exchange 
program is. Programs are, so because the uh, Trump administration has recently come out against these programs. Right. So it's this idea that it's a place where uh, drug users can you can uh, get clean needles and sterile needles um, and cleaning supplies. And there are professionals on site not to help them uh, inject the drug. Um, they have to come with their own drugs. The facility does not provide them, nor does it help them find veins, for example. But in case while using the drug, something happens that they overdose, for example, there's immediate medical help. But also at these needle exchange programs, um, there also are services that people can walk into, like counseling and um, methadone treatment, to also kind of allow people to stop using or mm -hmm. begin the recovery path. It's all service. Right. And kind of what's also interesting is that on the side, on the campaign trail, She's also called for research into alternative painkillers, such as medical marijuana. And she claims that President Donald Trump's administration is kind of should be held accountable for, in her viewpoint, its weak response to the crisis. Um, so she wants to kind of investigate the government's uh, willingness to kind of enforce their stop, the stop the opioid abuse. So act. she doesn't think that the support is the not the support as a word but the support the act is strong enough right so do you think this is a creative plan or do you think she's kind of double dipping she's basically using her legislative work to push her campaign agenda well it's definitely uh better laid out than the first plan that congress passed and mm -hmm. that's obvious because she's not in power right now this is her you know campaign platform right and she can't do anything until she's elected mm -hmm. um so it doesn't really have to appeal to a bipartisan audience. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting how um, to see how much money this really would require. Right. Yeah, and I think that's kind of one of the drawbacks is that the last estimate about the crisis burden, the opioid crisis burden has on the economy was in 2013, which is, I mean, that's a long time ago. And yeah. at much lower rates of opioid use. But in 2013, it was, it was estimated that this crisis uh, will cost the U.S. economy more than $78 billion. Wow. So, again, is, you know, $10 billion really adequate? You know, does it really address the economic and the health stressors that people with addiction must also overcome? You know, this idea that, yes, you can rehabilitate them, but, you know, do they have a criminal record that's going to impede on their ability to um, basically find a job afterwards, mm -hmm. for example, or – get a mortgage to live in a house or, you know, be able to get a loan to start renting an apartment, for example. It also seems that she's focused on a very long-term solution, especially funding all this research. I mean, the only short-term uh, solution that she's talked about are the um, the uh, needle exchange programs, but those right. are really mitigating the effects. They're not stopping the opioid crisis, just trying to make it safer for some people. Right, exactly. And I think what's very interesting is that, you know, she pushes, for example, for medical marijuana, but she refers to the gold treatment, the gold standard of, of treatment to be methadone. So kind of this idea that we want alternative treatment options, but also let's kind of stick with methadone. And for those of you who haven't heard of methadone, methadone was used as um, a drug to try to get people who are addicted to heroin off of heroin. But the problem is then they became addicted to methadone because it still is an opioid. Right. So methadone is not perfect. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so currently the, the CARE Act, she has stalled in Congress. Um, it has tremendous support by professionals, 
But there was 81 co-sponsors in the House, which is not even close no. to the majority, despite the Democrats controlling the House. And there's no co-sponsors in the Senate. So um, Warren and uh, her, you know, co-author, uh, Elijah Cummings, mm-hmm. is are planning to kind of reintroduce the CARE Act with amendments in the next few months. But they're still expected to face the obstacles because there's stigma around addiction and Republicans are resisting uh, spending much any more money on the opioid crisis than already being spent through the Support Act. And they don't really they're they can't really rebudget right now because they're having difficulties, you know, getting mm-hmm. this passed through the executive branch. So do you think introduce, introducing the CARE Act is going to be effective or does it show something about the culture in government? Um, I mean, from the support it has right now, I think that given that uh, a comprehensive bill was passed in 2018, Republicans especially, but really uh, Congress people in general, the representatives are going to see that they don't have to do anything more. Even right. if they've symbolically done their part, it's on the books that they've acted. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be up to these individual candidates to really implement something, hopefully, next election cycle. Right. Yeah, I agree. So let's take a look at one more position. Amy Klobuchar is a 59-year-old senior senator from Minnesota. She also was a former corporate lawyer, and she announced her candidacy on February 10th. Um, In regards to her drug policy, she's she's drawn on her personal experiences to shape her policy decisions. Mm -hmm. She had to confront her father's alcoholism, which has inspired her actions. And also she recalls hearing addiction-related stories from voters. Okay. She was recently questioned at a town hall about her position on the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And her opinion boiled down to a few words where it's that there is not enough funding currently going into addiction. She thinks that if we fund addiction programs now, it's going to save money in the long haul, which I think relates back to what we were talking about, the cost of right. the opioid crisis, because it's really debilitating for these people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And the way that she wants to pay for it is with money from the drug companies. Okay. In Congress, yeah. she supported the Lifeboat Act, which has not yet passed, but it's not a new act. It's been introduced as early as 2017, if not before. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So basically, this act would put a one cent tax, per se, on each milligram of active opioid ingredient mm-hmm. in a prescription pain pill. And all of that money would go to fund efforts to provide and expand access to substance abuse treatment. Okay. The bill would also include this rebate program for cancer-related pain drugs. So there are going to be some exemptions uh-huh. for people who really need these drugs and there's no alternatives. But um, it would essentially hold the drug companies responsible right i guess what what i find this interesting though is that for example if we want the prescriptions of opioids to be cut and there has started to be like a disincentivizing um by you know the government yeah to cut uh you know doctors who are pain who are basically having pill factories and pumping out prescriptions i mean is this still going to produce the money that is needed if we're trying to also cut down prescriptions while also taxing? Um, I think it's pretty short-term right now because right now we don't have that many alternatives to opioid painkillers. I mean, even Mm -hmm. morphine is probably the most common that people have heard of. And for people who really have intense pain, they're going to need some types of drugs. 
And though Warren talked about find it, funding research into these new drugs, that's going to be take. It's going to take years before these are approved because right. the FDA yeah. approval process is long. Yeah, and very expensive too. Yeah. So outside of Congress, she also has her own plan that um, is part of her campaign platform. Uh-huh. And she interestingly ties uh, drug and alcohol addiction with support for mental health. I see. So she's combating three things, and not necessarily just opioid addiction, but general drug addiction. Uh-huh. So instead of putting a one-cent tax per milligram, she wants uh-huh. to put a two-cent oh, wow. tax per milligram. So really, <laughs> that's how you make it your own plan. Just put a it cent act more. Yeah. Um, in addition, something that's a little bit different than the Lifeboat Act is she's going to close this tax loophole okay. for the big pharma companies. And she's going to try to keep big pharma from paying competitors to keep generic drugs off the market. Okay. Therefore, giving people a more um, affordable alternative. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be part of her quote-unquote master settlement agreement with opioid companies, which is interesting, interesting. to see how that will pan out. Basically, her plan boils down to charging big pharma and regulating big pharma. Uh-huh. This also has multiple multiple components. The first is prevention. She's going to fund and train, in the most general sense of the word. Train doctors, train drug users, train administrators on what to do. Uh-huh. And she's going to put more money into prevention. Right. She's also going to require doctors to use prescription drug monitoring programs. So this is a pretty cool thing. Okay, it's not that cool because it's really dark because we're talking about the opioid crisis. Right. I just like the name. Uh-huh. She wants to prevent doctor shopping. Okay. And it kind of, kind of sounds fun. Like each doctor is waiting in a window and you get to pick the best because they give out the coolest stickers or uh-huh. have the most recent waiting room magazines. Yeah. But really it's not. Uh-huh. Um, and it deals with uh, patients getting opiates from a variety of physicians. Right, yeah. So if there's this monitoring program in place – this to me was really innovative. Uh-huh. She's going to make sure that doctors are trained to know, you know, which patients are going to multiple doctors and having more information about that. Mm-hmm. The second portion of the bill focused on treatment. Mm-hmm. She wants to fund help for addiction, fund mental health programs, and also introduce more hospital beds, especially in rural areas, because people can't get the treatment they need if there are not treatment facilities available. Yeah. And also, this is something that. Um, Elizabeth Warren's plan didn't really touch on, which is ongoing recovery. Mm-hmm. She wants to introduce job training for people who are addicted and mm-hmm. transitional housing so they can get back to their lives. She also brings in a little bit of a political spin when she talks about treatment, not incarceration for nonviolent drug offenders. I see. I think we hear about this a lot, especially with these more progressive candidates. Mm-hmm. And um, it goes hand in hand with the decriminalization of marijuana in many states. Right. Yeah. Just drug um, you know, drug reform. Yeah, because this is this is a whole other topic when we talk, can talk about the racial injustice of the criminal justice system. Right. But uh, I think really she wants to put this all together and maybe expand that decriminalization to regular drugs instead. Mm-hmm. Um, she also wants to introduce crisis intervention intervention training for the police. That's really interesting because I guess then you also have kind of you know all of the ethics behind police brutality when it comes with this opioid crisis yeah a buzzword that we hear all the time in college is intersectionality and this is like the epitome of intersectionality yeah you're bringing in the criminal justice system you're bringing in the cops you're bringing in race right it's all tied it's just yeah which in reality it is but 
is this very detailed enough of a plan to kind of gr- to kind of guide these different elements to work together to solve this issue? Well, that brings me to the critiques of the plan. She doesn't really list true specifics. She has a number, which is remarkably the same as Elizabeth, as, as Elizabeth Warren, 100 billion. Right. But she doesn't say split over 10 uh-huh. years. And she doesn't say, you know, really how this is going to be implemented, what organizations she's going to work through, mm-hmm. how Congress is going to make this plan with Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. This is also really expensive. We talked about price before, but I mean, you can tax these people, but the problem is, could this added cost to the pharmaceutical companies get passed down to the consumers who are already having trouble paying for their drugs? Yeah. And I'm not talking drugs like heroin. I'm talking their legal drugs. Right. Like aspirin, for example. Like, you know, if if a pharmaceutical company like Merck is being taxed, you know, because they're helping build a synthetic opioid, they're going to pass that burden on to, you know, increasing the price of aspirin. And then if your over-the-counter drugs get too expensive. as expensive as it is. Exactly. Then we're going to go on the street to buy your painkillers. I mean, it's, it may be an overgeneralization, but you also have to remember that some people are in true desperate economic situations. That's true. But tell me this. So Amy Klobuchar has focused a lot on the fact that the drug companies are responsible. Mm-hmm. Do you, what do you think it means that the drug companies are responsible for this? I think it's this idea that they know they made a something that could result in altering a patient's state of mind. And mm-hmm. I think that it's, you know, kind of how they market it, similar to how we hold accountable, you know, tobacco and nicotine True. Um, companies and how they, uh, you know, market it that when you make, you know, taking – uh, smoking cigarettes, sexy, uh, the same way that you see your advertisement on TV about, you know, this woman that goes from not being able to play with her kids to having this wonderful life, you know, the marketing ploy behind that and doing this knowingly that they're misleading patients, Mm -hmm. then I think they are responsible. But I think you also have to just understand that drug companies might not understand completely the science behind the products they're producing that yes, it might work. Are they responsible for understanding the science behind it? I mean, I guess you can't expect them to know all of science and there's in every drug, you don't know, for example, the side effects going into it. Correct. Um, So I guess in that way, you can't expect them to a hundred percent. You can't have, can't have expected them to predict this crisis. That's true. But I think that you should hold them responsible with the marketing and the advertising that they're using to kind of attract vulnerable people to mm-hmm. use their drugs. And that's when I think they're doing something wrong and they should be held accountable because they know they're doing something that is motivated by money mm-hmm. and not maybe the well-being of the community. Yeah, I think we have agreed by now that Big Pharma is not your best friend. No. It's not going to take care of you. I mean, in a capitalist system, you know, what it – it's, you know, competition for revenue and to keep up. And when you have huge conglomerates, I mean, it's very easy to be swallowed in this market of pharmaceuticals. That's true. So the last thing I want to discuss um, is the unique association of mental health and drug addiction that the other candidates do not bring up. Right. I think there's this underlying idea in Elizabeth Warren's that there's, you know, stigma attached to it. Mm -hmm. But I agree that I think this is kind of the first plan that we see this mental health and drug addiction, I think it's very serious. Because I think also that maybe if we destigmatize addiction to drugs, 
and opioids, for example, maybe this can kind of lead us down the road of destigmatization of other mental health illnesses mm-hmm. too, um, because opioid addiction is just one of the you know plurality of mental health problems that yes. people can have. And I mean, they're still humans; they're not lesser humans because um, they can't control themselves. Exactly. I mean, mental health can lead to a drug addiction, and drug addiction can lead to mental health issues. It really exactly. goes hand in hand. Right. Yes. So I think that moving forward, maybe some candidates should be more specific, like Warren, but want to take on the intersectionality of Klobuchar. I agree. Yes, that's a good point. Here's a recap. There's not really a right or left when it comes to the opioid crisis. Everyone wants to solve this issue, but the division comes down to how much money are we willing to spend and what programs we are willing to fund. Now it's time to spill a tea. Even as our 2020 candidates begin to dream up plans of combating this epidemic, the crisis continues to rage on. In some states, opioid deaths have begun to fall, but overall, the number of deaths nationwide is continuing to increase. The opioid crisis, unlike the college admissions process, does not care who your parents are or who you pay to take the SAT for you. Nobody's truly safe. Those who are legally prescribed opioids for legitimate severe pain can easily fall victim to this epidemic. Moving forward, it will take money, and yeah, a lot of it, to initiate change. But that's not all. Many of these plans need to address the culture of opioid prescription that is feeding the problem. Our doctors, patients, and pharmaceutical companies will need to monitor how we distribute painkillers. Any comprehensive plan moving forward should tackle treatment, but also prevention, which may take years to dig ourselves out of this addictive hole. So make your health teacher proud and be cautious. Learn how to treat someone who's overdosing and make sure you are never in that situation. Now let's throw it back a whole week to our discussion about immigration. Opioids are coming across the southern border. That's a fact. But just as immigrants come into the country from other points of entry and means of travel, so do these drugs. At the same time, there are drug distributors in the U.S. and drug distributors outside of the U.S. So even building the Great Wall of the U.S. is not going to solve this epidemic. Because if it was that simple, why would we even have this conversation? To learn more about the opioid crisis, check out the links below and hit us up at the teon2020 at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter using the handles the T on 2020. Thanks for tuning in and go vote. Stay in school, kids.